Go ahead and be seated. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you that in it your promises are contained and that in those promises we find hope and that that hope is indeed an anchor for our souls tethering us, grounding us, anchoring us so that we don't drift away into despair and unbelief. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue through, as we continue through Hebrews, We find ourselves coming out of a text that, if you were here last week, uh, is difficult. A text that, that basically warns us against falling away from the faith. And and it's good, it's it's actually really good that if you were to read that this whole book in one sitting, that you wouldn't have had to wait a week like we did to go from that text from that passage to this one because we go from a warning to a great hope and a great promise this week we're going to talk about the God who keeps his promises now promises are important to us as a people aren't they like when you hear that word promise, even, even from when you were a kid, like you would hear things and your, your mom or your dad might make a promise to you and that promise would invest in you a lot, right? Like there's this hope, there's this excitement, there's this certainty that comes with a promise. And maybe, maybe you grew up in a home where promises were broken often or promises just weren't ever made and there wasn't really that certainty. Like there was something that you missed and something that you longed for. Like we long for promises. We long beyond promises for contracts. And beyond contracts for covenant. 
I want to briefly kind of make distinctions between the three and then explain what's going on with the word promise here to give us a sense of it. Right, Because when we say promise now, uh, we can use that word sometimes more flippantly than we understand. Right, and, and we need to hear that word sometimes with the ears of a child. Right, Because we, we say, like, I promise. But even now when we say promise, we kind of mean that in the same way that we mean, like, yeah, sure. Like, I think, I promise, I promise I'll do that. Right? I promise that, like, that's a promise. And we intend to keep it, but there's there's... There's no contractual weight to a promise. We see it all the time. You've been in relationships, you've been in scenarios where people break their promise. And it's frustrating. And part of what's frustrating is that often there's no teeth to it. There's no like, you broke this promise, here's consequence for you right and as a people we understand that like a gentleman's handshake (laughs) promise uh doesn't really hold up i mean it actually does remarkably in the court of law like but but like there's not much behind it and so what do we do next like we go to contracts so a contract is a promise with teeth like i promise i'm going to pay for this space And you promised that I can use this space and that one day I'm not going to come back to this space that I call home or that we call home as a church and find that it's been boarded up or sold to somebody else and that I'm no longer allowed to go in. Right. There's a contract. And so what happens with this contract? There are terms. I promise that I'm going to pay this amount of money for this period of time. And if I stop, you can take this contract to court and I will have to pay it. Or you promise that I'll have this space for a certain amount of time. And even then, even then there are ways out of it, right? Like you can break a contract. It's just costly. You can, you can negotiate a breaking contract. Now, covenant. Covenant is like a promise. It's like a contract. But I want to use that term for a second, not in the ways that we use it, right? Because if you have a homeowner's association, there's a covenant there. And there are terms of that covenant. And the terms are basically, you own the house, but somehow they can control everything that you do with it. And if you don't do it, then they can take your house. It's an odd covenant. Uh, It seems wrong, right? And I mean, maybe at one point there was a good value to it. I don't know. I actually don't think so. I think historically it only gets worse. When you look at homeowners associations, I'm, I'm not lying. Like they were a good way to keep black people out of, out of certain neighborhoods, right? That's their genesis. You know, covenants. But in scripture, covenant is different. We've talked about this a lot. A covenant is a, it's a contract, but it's terms between... <clears throat> Two parties that will last forever. Like a covenant was, we went into this before. Let's review. A covenant usually happened after some sort of conflict or battle. Or right before some sort of conflict or battle. There were two kings. And when we say kings in the ancient Near East, I don't want you to think of like King Henry VIII. Right, like king of an empire. I want you to think of like Don Corleone, right? Like a family head, 
Like me, my family, my family's servants, my servants, my servants' family. This was a nation. And there would be a king of it. Right? If you, it, next week we'll talk about how they, Abraham functioned as a king. Uh, and Melchizedek comes. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But, but kings were kind of like family dons. And there would be greater kings and lesser kings. Uh, and all that really meant is a greater king had more land, more more livestock, more uh, family members and servants who were able to fight in battle. And it would become clear that the lesser king could not stand against the greater king. Now, if the greater king wanted to, they wouldn't have to make a covenant. All covenants in the ancient Near East were in some way a function of grace. Because when you've got all the weapons and all of the supplies, you don't have to to not destroy the other people. When you don't have that, it behooves you to make a covenant, right? Right? Like this makes sense, right? And so they would come together and they would would make a contract and what they would do, like this is sort of the Sumerian ritual that they would go through is that they would take animals and they would cut them in half. Much like the text we read earlier, we're going to come back to that. They would cut them in half. And they would take cloth and they would dip it in the blood of the animals. Like, this is gross. I get it. Right? Like, we are way past this. Right? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) We'd love to watch it on a television program. We just don't want to, like, see it in real life. Right? Um, And they would, like, dip the cloth in the blood of the animals. And they would wrap the bloody cloth around their hands. And they would hold it together. And they would have terms of the covenant. Right? Uh, I, I will protect you. I will... I will give you this land. I'll let you stay on it. I will, I will be a good king to you. Uh, and then the other one will be like, I'm not going to rebel. I'm going to pay a tithe of what I have. I'm going to give you my men as your men when it comes to battle and war. And, and they would walk through the animals reciting the covenant over and over again as they walk through one way. And then they would walk through towards them the other way. And then... they would swear on those animals and they would say something to the effect of if I should break this covenant or if one of us should break this covenant, may what was done to these animals be done to me. A lifetime binding covenant in which if you broke that covenant, and oftentimes the person who was most likely to break the covenant was the lesser king because they had less to lose or more to, like they had less to lose, more to gain, uh, and if they broke it, oftentimes that's exactly what would happen. You hear these stories of just barbaric acts. Like this was a covenant. It's a contract between two uh, peoples that was mediated by a king. But nonetheless, it was binding to all of the people under those covenant heads, under those covenant kings. There's a promise. But it was a promise with teeth. And often it was an everlasting promise. It was a generational promise. Just because this king who made the covenant died does not mean that now his people are out of that covenant. He was the covenant head and it is for all of the people. So you're following like biblically like covenant is huge. Now, what's interesting is we make these distinctions, I think, in our culture, partially because we're very litigious culture. And so we want to know, like, what can I take you to court for? Right? Like, can't take you to court for a promise. But a contract, covenant, I can. They were less so then. 
We're much more of an honor culture than us. And so in some ways, when, when we says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, Abraham here in verse 13, like it's talking about a covenantal promise. When God covenanted with Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham began with the promise. If you consider Genesis 12, right? How does Genesis 12 start? God calls Abram out from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, like we, like, like we heard uh, earlier. And, and he said, I will make you the father of many nations. That's a promise. That's not a covenant at that point, technically. But God's promise is made sure by a covenant or an oath. And it says in verse 16, people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, right? This isn't just a promise. This is a covenant. God takes his promise and he backs it up with this covenantal action. God has made a promise. It's amazing. He's not just made a promise to Abraham. Through his promise to Abraham, he's made a promise to all those who would be called Abraham's children. All right, so that's a very long and like sort of technical preamble <laughs> to what we're getting into, but we have to understand that God, God has made a promise. God has made promises. The word of God is full of the promises of God and the promises of God and promises matter. Some of you are in a place where you're having difficulty holding on to the promises of God and believing that God is faithful to keep his promise. So were the recipients of this letter to the point that they were ready to, to leave. They were ready to walk away. They were ready to go back. And the author is desperately telling them to cling on to the hope and the promises of God. And so he tells them about the nature of the promises of God. And so that's the first thing that we're going to talk about is the nature of the promises of God. It's a covenantal promise. It's an everlasting covenant that God makes. God says to Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. God covenants with Abraham Abraham, uh, in, in, in uh, Genesis 15, which Alicia read earlier and which is over here. And I want to just point out some things from Genesis 15. Like the, the way that God covenants with Abraham, God doesn't have to do it. But he chooses to do it in a way that is contextually appropriate to Abraham and to the people of, to the people of that time. He does it the way that covenants were done. So listen, it says, after all these things, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? Abraham says. So first of all, if you were wrestling with God, I want you to hear the way that Abraham feels free to wrestle with God. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What's, what's Abraham saying? Like, you remember when I left Ur of the Chaldeans, how I did that? Because when I was in Ur, you were like, you're going to be the father of many nations. Well, it's been a minute. 
I'm not getting younger. My wife's not getting younger. We don't have kids. And if we're talking about offspring, the only person I have to give all my stuff to is Eliezer of Damascus. I don't know anything about Eliezer. He might have been a good dude. He wasn't a kid. He wasn't a child of Abraham. And God had made a promise and Abraham had been waiting on the promise. And he was like, you should hear frustration. Like we always read these things where people pray to God and there's always like this quiet faithfulness in our mind when we were like, oh, he was just praying. Oh, God, you made a promise and I know you'll keep it. But 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 when is it going to go? No, Abraham is not pleased with God right now. You made a promise, God, and I still don't have children like feel that freedom to say to God, like, Lord. Where you at? What are you doing? That's what Abraham does. Behold, Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And God responds to Abraham and says, this man won't be your heir. I made you a promise. I intend to keep it. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then the Lord takes him outside and Mufasa's him. Right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, Abraham, look at the stars. Look at the stars. Right? And instead of going, like, these are the, your, the ancestors of the past, the great kings of the past, he says, like, these are going to be your children, this numerous, as numerous as the stars. Is how numerous you, your offspring will be. Remember when I told you that? I meant it. I meant it. See, God can handle our frustration with him because God knows the reality of his plans for us. So shall your offspring bring. And he calls Abraham to remember, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. And Abraham is still not convinced. Oh Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I, Throw me a bone. Give me a sign. I need something. I actually think of Rich Mullins. Hold me, Jesus. I'm shaking like a leaf. Like I need something. Do you who live in heaven hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth? Do you? How shall I know? And so God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer, three years old. Now, listen, I'm going to just let you know, I read commentaries. I wasn't really like queuing in on or really concerned to know why a heifer three years old, why the age mattered. Young, I don't know. It doesn't matter. This is something that would have happened. Give me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought him all of these things. And by God's command, he cuts them in half. All right, so now we're getting this picture, right? So if you had just read this, not understanding sort of the Sumerian covenantal contractual like ritual, this is a very disturbing and odd moment. But it actually makes a lot of sense to Abraham. Makes a lot of sense to the people who would hear it. 
They cut the animals in half, but not the birds. And they laid each half over, making an aisle, just like they would have. And they chased the birds of prey away because this is important. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, another way that you could translate this or understand this is that God placed Abraham into a trance. Like, God caused this deep sleep to fall. This isn't like Abraham got tired and fell asleep. Like, God kept Abraham from doing anything that would normally happen. Because what would happen in a Sumerian covenantal uh, ceremony? Both the greater and the lesser king, two parties, because there are two parties in the covenant, would walk through the carcasses, would walk through this path, reciting the terms of the covenant. God causes Abraham to fall asleep. I know it says Abram, I, you know. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God is, God is telling Abram the journey that his people are going to take. Your offspring, so there's that promise. You're going to have offspring, but your offspring are not going to, it's not going to be easy for them on like, it's not. They're going to be bound. They're going to be enslaved. But I'm going to free them and I am going to rain down on those who do this to them. And they'll wander, but I will guide them and they will go forward. And after they walk through slavery in the wilderness, they will enter the promise with great possessions. You're going to go to your fathers. You're going to die in peace. But they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Right? Like, they, your children will be blessed. They will be exiles in a foreign land, and I will bring them back. These are the terms of God's covenant. So now, here's what's interesting about the nature of God's covenant. What has he told Abram to do? Nothing. Nothing. I will be my God. You will be my people. That's what he says in, in chapter 12. Like the terms of the contract are all on who? God. Not only that. Not only that. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. All right. So now let's, let's, let's flash forward a little bit. Um, when God actually fulfills the very specific nature of the promise here and delivers Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right? They go, they're leaving Egypt, they're going to the promised land. They don't really know the way. So how do they get there? How do they navigate it? In day, there's a pillar of smoke. And at night, there's a pillar of fire. Time and time again, when you go to Ezekiel, time and time again, this imagery, this smoke, this fire is used actually to talk about the Holy Spirit. 
Like, it's used to show God's direction and leading. Like, what we have here are visible manifestations that God chooses to use of the fact that this smoking pot and this flaming torch represent the fact that God himself is walking through these pieces. God himself has made the terms of the covenant. God himself has placed the onus on covenant breaking on him. Ultimately, we'll get law from this covenant, right? He'll covenant with Moses, which is a continuation of his covenant with Abraham. And we'll get law, which means when the people break the law, they're breaking the covenant. God understands that Abraham could not keep the terms of the covenant. God understands that we cannot keep the terms of the covenant. So he doesn't have our covenant head, Abraham, in this moment, walk through. He walks by himself. And so what does he say? He's saying, these are the terms of the covenant. And if either of us break this covenant, what was done to these animals shall be done to me. Do you see the nature of God's covenant? He is swearing on himself. He's saying, if this covenant is broken, I'll die. And it is. By us. And he bears the burden and the weight of covenant breaking. It's grace. See, this is the nature of God's promise. It goes on. It says, right, it's going back to Hebrews 6. It says in verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself. That makes sense. Well, like I think, think about um, Inigo Montoya and the Prince's Bride, right? And he and, and Fezzik and uh, uh, Vicini have just scaled the cliffs of insanity. You all are with me, right? We've seen this movie, right? Am I the only one? Okay, fine. So they're at the top, and the man in black, who we don't know is yet, is our hero, Wesley, like is climbing up after him, and Inigo has been told to stay to fight and kill him. And he, like most of us, is getting impatient because the man in black didn't have a giant to climb him up the, the, the cliff. So he looks down and he's like, hey, I, I know it's not easy, but do you mind hurrying up? And Wesley says, it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, and so then he says, well, I could throw you a rope, but you'd have to trust me. And he's like, yeah. He says, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be good for you because I'm, I'm waiting here to kill you. And he's like, yeah, that does put a damper on our relationship. And then he says, what if I swore to you? What if I swore as a Spaniard? Like... <laughs> You know, and Wesley says, no good, known too many, right? Which I don't affirm that about Spaniards. They're great, I guess. I don't know any. Maybe I do, right? But it's the movie, right? No, no good, known too many. And then what does he do? He swears on something greater than that. I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. And that oath on that thing is great enough, is weighty enough. The Wesley says, throw me the rope. When we go to court, we, we place a hand on a Bible or something like, and, and we swear by that because we're saying this thing is greater. This is what I'm going to swear by. We swear by things greater than us. Uh, <clears throat> and there's nothing greater that God can swear by than himself. And so God swears to God. Like, It's remarkable what's happening here. God swears on himself and he does it not just for Abraham. He does it for us. 
It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's not Abraham, that's Abraham's heirs. That's Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them and so are you, right? That's us. God wanted to convince us that his promises are sure and that we could trust them. And so he swore on his own life, on himself. On his unchanging, unchangeable character. And it says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We can hold fast to that hope. We can who have fled for refuge can hold strong uh, to the hope that is set before us. God swears on himself and he cannot tell a lie. And so this is interesting because this also speaks to the nature of God's covenant. Not only does he take the whole promise on himself and the whole terms of the covenant on himself, he swears by himself and he can't break the covenant. Like, so here's the thing about promises is sometimes we make promises and my mom would always say, don't make a promise that you don't know you can keep right like don't make a promise that you don't have the power to keep but here's what's funny is like if we actually took that to heart we would never make a promise because at the end of the day I can't promise you that I won't drop dead right now and be unable to keep the promise that I made I'm not in control of the weather I'm not in control of 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 life and death. I'm not in control of the sun and the, and the universe. Like these things are held, held in the palm of God, not by me. God is. God literally, any promise God makes, he has the power to keep. He has the ability, nothing can thwart God from keeping his promise. And so he swears on himself, the highest. That's why we swear to God. And why the scriptures say, don't do that. You're not God. You don't know what God's going to do. You can't bind God. Don't swear to God. But God does. Because God does. He knows. And he does. This is the nature of it. God's promise is, on, he's like, on my life. <laughs> on my life. And he means it. And then ultimately, we break God's covenant. And God still fulfills his covenant in Jesus. There's a song we sing, right? All, all his promises are yes and amen. Right? Like the rest of the verse in scripture is in Jesus. In Jesus, God has kept this covenant. Because even though we break it time and time again with faithlessness, even though we break it with our sin, even though we break it with our, our like animosity towards each other, even though we are perpetual covenant breakers, we have entered into the covenant not by our might, not by our strength, not by our walking through the blood, but rather through Jesus, who is a forerunner, who has gone before us, who has torn the curtain in two, who has entered into death, who has walked through the very blood that he shed. Like, like it, it's a bloody thing. It's gross. And yet, in it, God has said, I keep my promises to the point that I die to show you. This is the nature of God's promise. Promises are yes and amen. They are sure. He has died to ensure them. And there is a power to that.
power of God's promise. I remember as a kid, um, like we would go to like King's Dominion or sometimes if we were lucky, we were like flying to Florida and just hanging with them. Florida was great. Like, uh, and, and even though like, even though my mom had bought tickets and there was sort of like this certainty that it was going to happen as a kid, you're still kind of like, I can't believe this is going to happen. It's actually going to happen. This is going to happen. Like it needs to come so that I know that it's going to happen so that it will happen and it will have happened. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like as a kid, there's that, like there's, it's, it's excitement and anticipation and, and that buying of a ticket, that planning of a trip, it is a promise in a sense, just like I was talking to the kids about. And so school, man, school was hard, but there was always this like understanding that once school was over on this particular day or the most difficult thing as a kid, and I see it in my kids, uh, especially the younger one, ones, is, is, especially the younger one really, is like sleep, like going to sleep. Like there's nothing pleasant to a child about like having to go to bed at night. It doesn't make sense to me because it like, like, 4.45, if I can get home, like, it's pajama time, and sleep's coming. Like, it's, it's around the corner. I can feel it. I'm going to sleep, right? Sleep is great, but to a kid, it's like, oh, sleep is the worst thing ever because I'm probably missing out on something great, and you're really not. Like, nothing good happens after midnight. Like, nothing. Nobody's ever been like, yeah, I made the right decision at 2 in the morning. It's never happened, like, in history. Yeah, good thing I stayed up and made the right decision there. Like, nobody's made a good life-changing plan. Like, they've made life-altering decisions, <laughs> but it was never good, right? But, but you remember being a kid, and you're going somewhere awesome the next day. What do you do? Like, oh, just ate dinner. It's about, yeah, 545. Uh, time to go, right? Because the faster you go to bed, the faster tomorrow comes. Right. And like you're able to endure something you really don't like, even with like expectation and joy, like hopping in bed like, yeah, Sunshine Teddy. That was actually my teddy bear's name. Like, yeah, we're doing this. <laughs> like We're going to Florida tomorrow, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and you're able to endure things even that are hard. So here's the thing is like that's actually scales to this. Like the promises of God are yes and amen, and he will carry you safely home, which means that while we are here, we will endure much hardships and suffering. But we can do it not because like we're super strong and God won't give me anything I can't handle, right? Like that's fine if you want to be like that, but it's also not true. Like there's a lot you can't handle and it behooves you to admit that you can't handle it so that God can walk you through it, right? But that's an aside. Like... You can endure it because on the other end, the promise of God is yes and amen. The hope of God is sure. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are in terms of a storm. It's been said you're either going into one, in the middle of one, or coming out of one. One of the three in life. Right? I don't know where you are in the midst of trials and suffering. I mean, some of you I do, others of you I don't. Uh, even if you keep it to yourself, the fact is that this suffering, Paul says, is momentary and light. It says here in, in, in Hebrews 6 that Abraham, in verse 15, patiently waited. He waited a long time. 
he patiently waited and obtained the promise. I think about Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. Now that sounds great, but then you hear where he says he was. I waited patiently for the Lord. It wasn't like I was on my, I was on my knees by my bed, right? Like praying and waiting for the Lord. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. cry. He lifted me out of the pit. Despair, depression. He lifted me out of it and out of the miry clay. He placed my feet on solid ground. You may be in a pit, but in the pit, wait patiently. You may be in what feels like the zenith of your life. Wait patiently for the Lord. His promises are yes and amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful 